Hello and welcome to the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. And I'm the newly mic'd Albert Imperato. Where we help men communicate and build empathy. So Albert, we have a fun one on here today, but just want to check in with you, see how your new year has started. We've got a, a lot of fun things that we talked about on our last podcast, and I just want to catch up with you and see how those are going for you. Well, first, I want to apologize for waiting so long to ask you to get me a mic, because <laughs> when I went back and listened to some of the talks, I just could not believe how awful I sounded. So thank you for saving each and every previous podcast. Um, honestly, it was just such a joy to get such incredible response to the chat we had with Mike Loria. Uh, he talked about his relationship and his new marriage. And uh, it was just such a beautiful outpouring of, of affection for Mike and for the topic. And and we learned a lot about, about the, them and we learned a lot about the show. So I was really grateful for that. And uh, yeah, it's been a busy couple of days. Lots of weird anniversaries and big anniversaries and 20 years from my own company. And Tomorrow's um, the eighth uh, year anniversary of my mom passing away, so it's uh, it's all a big jumble, just like life itself. Yeah, so it sounds like you got a whole lot on your plate. And what happened to Beethoven, man? I thought we were celebrating him. Oh yeah, definitely. We started the big two hundred fiftieth. We put our first uh, our first uh, album up on the playlist on the Spotify playlist, and I it was amazing. One of our our listeners. Uh, Ken Deichler uh, forges things in his garage. He's like a metal worker. He made a bottle opener and called it the Albert because he was listening to Beethoven while he made it. So I am. there is a bottle opener named after me. Yes, and if you want to do um, any more exploration into classical music, at the uh, bottom of our homepage on our website, we have the 50 greatest um, classical picks on there. So go ahead and take a look into that. I've cracked open a few of those, so I've uh, learned a little bit here and there. So I'm uh, I'm exploring. I I have a passion for classical music, but I am nowhere even close to Albert. So I'm uh, growing and enjoying with this too. Well, just let me know the ones you like because I'll tailor make some follow-up listens Ooh, just okay. for you. Very cool. Well, I'm super excited for it. But today we have a good friend of mine on the show. Her name is AJ, and I'd love to bring her on. But first, I want to tell you a little bit about her. So op- Dr. Aparajita Jidagunta, or Dr. AJ, her tagline in life is making the invisible visible for better inclusion. Dr. AJ is a social psychologist, a diversity, equity, and inclusion coach and consultant. As a certified executive and life coach, she is a mental well-being advocate, a published author, a blogger, speaker, and podcaster. AJ is an immigrant woman, a wife, a mom, and two-time traumatic brain injury warrior. As a coach, Dr. AJ helps people who want to transform themselves into confident, respected, visible leaders who are seen, heard, valued, appreciated, and most importantly, promoted. On the consulting side, she works with companies to create intentionally inclusive organizational cultures by helping them identify and develop their human resources into visible leaders. So welcome to the show, AJ. You are a good friend of mine, and it is a pleasure having you here. I'm so excited for our talk today. Thank you so much. Uh, um, Thank you so much for having me here, and I'm really excited for our talk today as well. And it is so nice to meet you, Albert. Yes, it's uh, thrilling to meet another AJ. Yes. (laughs) Yes, I'm an Albert John. So yeah, when I was a kid, I was always called AJ. So when... It's always good to talk to another AJ. Absolutely. Yeah. You have quite a background. My God, Adam, of course, talked a lot about you. <laughs> and then I started reading and uh, I just love the entire idea of making the invisible visible because the invisible things are kind of the most powerful things in so many ways. Yeah. Yes. And um, the vulnerability that goes into, first of all, seeing our invisibility for ourselves before we even start showing it to other people um, is is palpable and is one of the most transformational parts of anybody's experience in becoming the leader that they want to be. Yeah, it takes, uh, takes me back to just when I was a, a kid. I remember seeing that book on the shelf, uh, The Invis- Invisible Man. Mm. And, and it was a sort of a double thing because it was the old 
sort of a horror movie, Invisible Man, but there was also an uh, African-American uh, author who wrote a book called Invisible Man. And that really stuck in my, in my head growing up that er people have very, very definite, uh, different definitions of, of visibility. And um, you're, you're basically trying to tell everybody that there's so much, so much human resource around us that we're not taking advantage of, beginning with ourselves. So can you tell us a little bit about how you came into this, into this area uh, professionally, personally, you know, sort of what kind of got, got this thing in motion for you? Well, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, through, you know, Adam read my bio, which, you know, as I was hearing it, I'm like, who is this woman? <laughs> but um, if what the common thread of all of these seemingly like, you know, 89 different projects and initiatives that I'm involved in, they've all in different ways and shapes in my life rendered me invisible first. And so every initiative that I've kind of undertaken, the very first case study in all of them has always been me kind of trying to unpack how I rendered myself invisible, how I pigeonholed myself into a box that was not helping me thrive, how society did that for me, how the healthcare system did that, and so on and so forth. And really, I think that's kind of where in unpacking all of that, that's where I realized that that common thread of it's not, you know, I'm being rendered invisible. I rendered myself invisible. And then it's not just me. There are so many of us. So since I have sort of worked through some of it and I'm, and I'm continuing to work through some of it, what can I do to help other people as well? So was there that, that first moment where you made the, the mm -hmm. awareness to, in yourself that, that this was a, a situation that you actually were in a certain place that you did not want to be, you did not want to be invisible. What was the thing that triggered you to say, so this is not really where I want to be and I need to do something about it. Oh, that's a great question. Um, so it, it was when my now four-year-old was about nine months old and um, she looks, she's a carbon copy of me. Uh, she's a carbon copy of not just who I look like as a baby, but she's a carbon copy of me now in many ways as well. And at nine months, you know, she was just starting to interact with the world uh, fully. Um, she was just starting her first words. She was trying to walk, all of these things. And so it, it was a random afternoon. I could not pinpoint like the date or time, but I will tell you it was that moment. I, I looked into her face and I didn't, I, I saw my face reflected back in her face. And it was a very surreal moment um, where I realized, oh Lord, one day she's going to be able to talk, communicate in full sentences. She's going to have opinions. Uh, she's going to want to know more about the world and get inquisitive and curious. And I'm sure one of her questions are going to be, Mama, what do you do? What makes you happy? What's the impact that you want to have on this world? And in that moment, I realized um, I, don't, I, I don't have any, I don't have a single answer for any of these questions. I don't have, I, I couldn't even begin to articulate what any of these questions even meant to me in that moment. And then I thought, okay, why? Because I haven't taken the time to answer them for myself. But I also knew that I could do that work, answer them for myself, and in the process also um, teach her the values that I wanted to teach her about independence, about autonomy, about the importance of her voice, her identity, and not letting anybody else dictate who she should or ought to be, um, but that she truly does have the freedom to explore and be creative and, and evolve 
into whomever she wants to be in every single phase of her life. So that was the single moment where I thought, I, this, this is the potential then. So I have to do this so that I can get her to that potential. Adam, I wonder if you uh, relate to that moment being a dad yourself now. How, how old is your son? My son is turning one year in one week. So um, yeah, when you said that right at nine months too, that just like lit a spark in me. And I was like, me too. <laughs> um, but yeah, like that's when, you know, you really start seeing the personality come out. They start like reacting to what you say. And like my son, like, will just kind of like turn at me and he'll just like crack this big smile and it just melts your heart. And right then and there, you just want to know, like, I want you, I just, I just want you to have everything. I want you to have the best life. And that's where it kind of comes back and saying like, okay, I want this for you. So what am I doing for myself? How am I going to give this to my son? And how am I going to have my son give this to his son or daughter or whatever? So you kind of really start thinking about the ripple effect, you know, from that one smile. And it just takes you to so many different places. So whenever you said that, like exactly like right around nine months, I was like, oh man, me too. So um, I know like, you know, we, we wanted to explore a lot about self-love today and, you know, kind of how we grew and how we went further. So in that moment, whenever you kind of, you know, saw in her eyes and you had that experience, like what form of, you know, self-love and, and practice did you do to kind of elevate yourself to that next level? Well, so Adam, that's a, that's a really interesting question, right? Because, um, it was actually in that moment that I realized there was no self-love wow. that I, I was being, you know, cause until, until that point, I, it was a constant go, 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 go for me in my life, you know, school, grad school, um, even after my second traumatic brain injury, where I cognitively, you know, died and experienced an out-of-body experience, once I was brought back into my body and I regained consciousness, I only took a break of about two weeks. Wow. <laughs> before I, yeah, before <laughs> I um, went back to teaching, before I went back to my grad program, I had just declared my doctoral candidacy. And that was at stake because um, they wanted me to discontinue the program. Wow. And so it was just go, 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 go. And in no point in time did I consider self-love, self-acknowledgement, um, just even assessing how I've grown, none of that. So in that moment, were, you, were you on a path to study those psychology? Were you in that area already? Yes, yes, I was in the area already. It was my first traumatic brain injury, which, which was a concussion um, back in 2000. And back then, it, the concussions weren't even classified as traumatic brain injuries, and I'd gotten one. So I was, you know, it was outpatient. Oh yeah, you have a concussion. Go home, take some Tylenol, sleep it off for a couple of days. You're gonna be all right. Type of you know. Uh, mentality in the medical, in the entire medical field back then. So, and after that, things started kind of going, um, as I like to call them, wonky, uh, just not quite aligning the way they did. And uh, so that's what, what initially got me to psychology. So that I was already in psychology, but um, by this time, the second one happened. And of course, theoretically, I was studying all of these things we're talking about today, self-love and, you know, acknowledgement and gratitude and growth and personal development, all of these things from a psychological level rather than an individual, from like a data level rather than an individual level, what does it do to a person type of a thing? So this moment with my daughter then was the first time um, it really, it was almost like a punch in the face where I realized I have studied all of these things and I have become the so-called expert in all of these things and fat lot of good it did to me up until that point reminds me of the old uh, adage uh, physician heal thyself yep exactly and um so, so what did you start doing did you did you how did you find your way out of that that moment where you were kind of just lo locked up and kind of constrained 
Mm-hmm. How how did you release yourself? Well, I <clears throat> excuse me. So I think that realization in itself is a release, right? Even realizing what you're missing, realizing what you're not doing, realizing what your status quo is, is already, I think that's actually for me or for anybody, uh, you know, when it comes to self-love or any type of personal development, I would say building that self-awareness is actually a larger part of the process of transformation than any of the steps you take um, to move forward from it. Uh, So what I did was I leaned into that. Okay, so I have not been happy because, and I'm, you know, because I've not been kind to myself. Why haven't I been kind to myself? Let me take a look at my life. Let me go back and unpack every way in which I've not been kind to myself. And then let me see, is that actually the truth? Like all of these things that I'm telling about myself, all of these things that other people are telling me about me, what is the actual truth in that as far as it applies to my life? And let's just see where we go from there. And so it really was a very intensive period of introspection. A lot of what did you find? What did you find there? What did you <laughs> was it? Did you feel like, oh my god, I can't believe what I inherited from my family? I can't believe what this relationship did to me. I can't. Did, did you like begin to see the the pattern that made the the mosaic of your life, so to speak? Uh huh. Yeah. Um. Uh, let me let me say this to you and anybody who might be listening to this episode. Um. Be strong and just go through it. It is not going to be easy. There are things that are going to come up that are going to make you intensely uncomfortable and want to give up. And you will try and find every excuse in the book. Like if I go down this journey, it's going to ruin my relationship with my mother. If I go down this journey, it's going to ruin my relationship with my grandparents, with my mentors, with so on and so forth. Go on it anyway, because it's for your sake. Um, you don't have to now go back and tell all of these people what you think about it. And that's the caveat there. You still want to go through the journey. And yes, it, it was it was excruciating, Albert. It was, um, I'm smiling about it now, but it was, and this was also a period I was going through postpartum depression. So It truly was, um, there were times when my husband would come home from work and he would just take a look at me and he would say, I'm just not even going to say a word because of the look on your face. Was that, was that a, a positive thing to say or was, was he shutting you out or was he just didn't want to disturb you? Did you want him to come into your, into your, into your space, so to speak, and say, I'm worried about you and, and let me jump in here with you. Did we, what, what was that dynamic? It was, it was, um, it was a roller coaster. There were some times when I did want him to come in and offer that support. And there were other times where, um, I just wanted to be left alone to process and it was a work in progress. And it was, uh, our, our dynamic as, as partners in a marriage, deeply evolved ultimately for the better, but maybe not, you know, in those roller coaster moments, but ultimately for the better, it deeply evolved because of this, because when I first started on this journey, I didn't know either, you know? So there would be moments when he would come in and say, try to offer support. And I'd just look at him and be like, go away, go, just go. Mm -hmm. And then there'd be other times when he would not say anything. And I'd be like, why aren't you saying anything? I just like dumped my heart out to you. Like, why aren't you saying anything? And so initially we didn't know either because I was still trying to find the little red flags or the markers or whatever to identify these moments. But over time, we were able to kind of figure it out. Um, uh, I think the bottom line ultimately was that whether he spoke up or not, he was always physically there and he was nearby if I needed him. 
And so ultimately it was, uh, there was a level of trust that wasn't there before that got built on knowing that um, we're in this together and we're always going to be nearby if the other person needs that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, with my wife giving birth and going through all that as well, I, I totally feel you on the postpartum depression because that's a real thing and it happens. And, you know, there, there's just so many hormones and just so many emotions that come up that it's almost inevitable. And I think, you know, for me, what helped out was just like you said, physically being there because at first I didn't know what to do. I was like, Hey, should I help? Should I do this? Should I go do that? Like what's going on? Cool. Like, let me do the laundry, like something, you know, let me do something to, to do it. But, you know, sometimes she just needed to sit and process and just kind of let it all out. And then sometimes she just needed to talk to me. So again, yeah, it started as sort of, you know, a little bit of clashing, a little bit not understanding. But once we really worked through it and, and figured it out, you know, we just became closer and closer through it. So yeah, I mean, it's it's so tough. Do you think there was any like one thing that, you know, you experienced with P or, you know, that you experienced with your husband that really kind of like turned the corner in that or anything? Or do you think just was just kind of like time trial and error and figuring it out? I mean, I think, you know, going through it, I think it was just time, trial, and error. But you brought up a very, very interesting point, uh, which I realized in retrospect, and which you know is also went into a part of this whole making the invisible visible, is that idea of, you know, I feel like men, especially men, also women, but especially men, um, are so conditioned that if they see their loved ones hurting they have to jump in there right away and fix it. Absolutely. By doing yeah. something. And mm-hmm. it has to be a physical action and it has to be, you know, and and then the fix has to be immediate because it, it and it's this real sense of like that protection, like that I really don't want to see you hurting. Let me take your pain away. But a lot of the times especially with these mental journeys and inner journeys, that's not how things go. There is no palpable fix. The fix is don't force a fix. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So going off what you said on that, I totally found that out about myself and the, how my wife and I kind of got through that stage is we both read this book. It's really short. It's called the four essential keys to effective communication. And in that book, there is literally an entire section on the fix it response and the fix it mentality. And I was like, that's me. That's totally me. And I owned up to it. I was like, whenever you come with, you know, these emotions that sometimes I'm not ready to handle, or I just, I haven't experienced yet. Like I want to do something and I want to do it now. So that was me. Like I was like, okay, sometimes when this is a little bit too heavy for me, I'm like, I'm vacuuming. I'm doing this. I'm going to clean something because I'm like, this is something I can do to try to improve your mood. But what I really found out was the real answer was sitting down, listening, and just kind of hearing her out because, you know, for those times and situations, that's what she wanted. That's what she needed. And that's what got us through that. Exactly. Exactly. And it's, it's, it's a certain type of visibility in that situation, right? Um, it's interesting that you bring that up because um, so when you, uh, as, I'm, as, as we're talking about this, I remember a time in this period when I shared with P um, in all of my unpacking, something that came up about a, re- you know, a relationship that I had, like a, a, a relationship with I, that I had with one of our mutual um someone we knew mutually mm-hmm. and how that relationship I felt was unfair once I unpacked it. And here's what I was sort of seeing. And here's how this other person was, has consistently been pigeonholing me and consistently been um, minimizing my voice and minimizing what I was saying or misinterpreting, misinterpreting it in their own way um, to kind of twist my words and to make me out to be this person that I wasn't all of this stuff. And next thing I know, this person is messaging me, just bombarding me with messages like WTF, all of this stuff. And I'm like, 
how did you like what? And then I looked at Pete and I'm like, what did you do? (laughs) And he was like, well, when you shared that with me, I just felt so bad. I called this person and I said, you know, this is very unfair of you. You need to fix it. And I'm like, oh, gosh, P, I would never have brought this up with this person because I no longer even have a relationship with this person. I was going to get let the relationship just naturally, you know, leave out of my life like there. Bye bye. We, you know, we're probably not going to talk that much and let it be. And instead this per you know all of a sudden this person's front and center back in my life and i'm like um this is not what i wanted at all <laughs> yeah so that kind of oh sorry albert yeah no i was going to um go back to you know you talked about self love mm-hmm. and it's it's one of those words that uh, one of those phrases that we hear a lot um and and it means different things to different people there's there's something of a paradox um there's this process that you talked about of going deeply into yourself, looking at what, where you were really at, um, what you were facing, why you felt invisible. And that kind of very intense scrutiny that you give yourself doesn't seem like the definition of self-love, but at the same token, to be able to really love yourself, you need to be able to live with yourself in a very honest fashion, because if you have to keep secrets from yourself, you're already kind of not a very effective person. So I'm just wondering uh, for people who are, are listening, uh, could, could could you just give a little of your definition of what self self love is and how that relates to being honest about who you are, where you're at, but also forgiving and compassionate towards yourself? Because I think we all also tend to be our own worst critics. Absolutely, um, and thank you for asking that question. I think it is a very important question to address. Uh, I have the feeling that when people think about self love even just based on how you, you know, what you were just asked, right? Um, people think it's about, for yes, th- yes, you have to forgive yourself. Yes, you have to be compassionate. Yes, you have to go on this journey where you are going to uncover very unpleasant things about yourself. And you have to somehow reconcile being able to live with that person. But that's, that's not all of it. When you go on this inner journey, you also are responsible, really, to understand your growth through those uncomfortable moments. You are responsible to understand everything you've learned about yourself from your past mistakes Um, experiences, and you are responsible for changing the narrative of the story that you are telling yourself about you with the positive and the negative, understanding that you are a whole human being who is never going to be perfect because perfect is BS, but you're always going to be growing You're always going to be learning and events as they happen are just events. How they've affected you, how they do affect you is based, um, is based entirely on what you learn from them about yourself. And so for me, self-love is actually more than, you know, like you said, the compassion and the forgiveness it's, acknowledging my accomplishments. It's being able to be confident, not arrogant, because those are two different things. You know, it's being able to stand confidently in my truth, in all of its beauty and simultaneous ugliness. And say, this is who I am. And I am proud of what I've gone through to get to where I am now, I am not perfect, but I also know that tomorrow I'm going to be a different person and I'm still okay with that. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, you have to be okay with yourself. 
And one thing that I've um, really explored at the start of this year is self-love and what is self-love. I actually um, asked a bunch of people, how do you measure self-love? How do you explain self-love? And I did get an answer to that question that I was actually pretty excited about. And I've been journaling it. So you see me busting out my journal here. And I kind of want to read um, one passage through it. Self-love is measured by your self-talk. How well you speak to yourself shows how much you love yourself. How can I grow my vulnerability, awareness, and growth around my self-talk and self-love? By talking about it, journaling it, and being mindful of it. So that for me kind of shows where I'm, you know, kind of on the spectrum of self-love because if I'm telling myself, oh, Adam, you're such an idiot for doing this, or this was so stupid, why did you do that? Um, that's not showing myself, you know, love. That's, you know, kind of showing myself, hey, like this, this is not a great thing. But by saying, hey, Adam, you're learning how to do this. Hey, Adam, you made a mistake and you're growing and you're finding another way to find a solution. That's showing myself love rather than, you know, any type of other, you know, talk to it. So, um, did you find yourself kind of adjusting your personal self-talk through that journey as well? Absolutely. It started off with exactly what you said about, um, you know, um, the, the whole journey started off with, um, I'm a failure. I'm a loser. I'm an unemployed mom with no job prospects. I have a PhD and, you know, it's not even worth the paper it's printed on. Um, I have, you know, I'm never going to find a job. I have a, I'm, I have a brain injury and I have five invisible disabilities. Who's going to hire me? I'm unemployable. Um, I, you know, I don't have any friends. I don't like, I mean, I, like, Imagine every negative thing you could possibly say about yourself, mm -hmm. it, especially when you're looking at like a 20 year time period, right? Not just even in that moment. And then of course you can, you know, you go back and you say, oh my God, you know, I was 17 years old and I was at this party and I had a crush on this guy. And why would I just go up to him and tell him that? Like, oh my God, what is wrong with me? Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not like, you know, Miss Universe. Of course, he's not going to come after me. So why would I even go and put myself? So all the way back to those kind of what we now know are, you know, petty hormonal moments in space and time. Like when we're 17 and 18, we have like by the next week, I'd crush on like four different other guys. So I don't even remember this guy's name at this point, but <laughs> But even just being able to like, you know, think about those things and realize that, right? So it went from saying all of these negative things to what I just said, that I was 17. It was one moment in space and time where I felt attracted to somebody else and I did something. I'm still alive. I'm happily married. I don't even know that dude's name. We're good. <laughs> There was no judgment necessary there, you know? So it was that evolution. And it was also the evolution of, you know, in my case, I don't think, um, because there is, in the traumatic brain injury space, there is a saying that if you know one TBI, you know one TBI. Because even with the same type of injury in the same type of location, with the same severity, um, because of individual body chemistry and because also of individual wiring in the brain, the healing and recovery process is very different and the prognosis is very, very different. So nobody around me knew what, what I was going through internally in being able to talk and walk and communicate and articulate or just interact with the world. Um, so there was a lot of, um, oh, why, why aren't you able to do that? Like, why are you getting confused with these numbers? You know, like you're good at math, just get over it. Uh, oh my gosh. If, if, if I had a penny for every time people have told me to just get over it and not focus on my injury, I Adam, I wouldn't be working right now. <laughs> I, I would have retired by the time, you know, my, by, by the, like by this month. But it was realizing all of those, those, that these messages that, that people are, people are going to say these to you, 
society is going to say these types of things to you in so many ways, but you are also saying these things to you in so many different ways, not just through your inner talk, but also with how you treat yourself and how you let other people treat you. Absolutely. You know? So, so yeah. What you said last was how you let other people treat you, which are setting healthy boundaries. And actually in our book club, um, we're reading some Brene Brown where she really talks about the people who have the highest shame resilience are able to set the most effective boundaries. And um, I also kind of want to bring up um, the the TBI as well, because you actually informed me that I am a TBI survivor because I had a concussion. Um, I played hockey for 12 years of my life and um, I was cross-checked from behind in open ice and I just fell right in on my head and was taken off the ice in a stretcher and, you know, hospital, MRI, everything. They're like, yep, you got a concussion, you know, rest for three days, make sure you're not thrown up, carry on. Um, yeah. So um, in that you know, kind of way of, you know, you have to recover, you have to bring yourself back. What boundaries did you have to set um, with other people? And how did you have to kind of like expose your vulnerability, but as well as protect it uh, with your interactions with other people? So initially, there was no outward exposure of my vulnerability. It was me realizing my vulnerability in those, um, in, 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 in the relationships around me and in doing so realizing that there were some relationships in my life that were truly actually toxic to me mm-hmm. and, 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 and toxic relationships are those, you know, so there's, there's three types of relationships, right. As far as I'm concerned, there's those relationships, those amazing positive relationships that actually help you thrive they challenge you in the right ways. They help you focus on your learning and growth, and they actually empower you to be the best version of yourself that you can be on a daily basis and continue to grow. Then there's those relationships in the middle. They're just there, you know, they're, they're, they're fun. Um, they're not necessarily, so positive that like you're, you're thriving in them, but they're not also negative. Like they're just, they're, they're neutral. And then those are, then there's a toxic ones where they actually actively try to pull you down, pull you back into the negative space, pull you away from being able to acknowledge yourself because these are the type of relationships where anytime you do want to acknowledge yourself, it's, there's that sense of guilt and shame that comes with it of like, Oh, like what? So you just want to talk all this like good stuff about yourself when you're not really all that in a bag of potato chips, those type of relationships where they actually don't allow you to acknowledge yourself and acknowledgement is bad. Self-love is bad. So you have to be critical of yourself and you have to, you have to present yourself in the way the other person wants you to, according to their expectations. And in those type of relationships, what um, I found is that I was so constantly trying to take care of the other person's expectations that by the end of the day, who I was being in those moments was like, so far apart from who I actually was that I'm, you know, I'm looking at these relationships, like, who is this person in here? Like, this is like, what? I would never say this in any other situation. Why did I say this here? I would never allow anybody to treat me this way. Like, if P said something like that to me, I would, you know, I would lecture him into like the next century. But this person is allowed to say that and more and get away with it and is getting no response from me. Why is that? What is going on there? Okay, so this relationship is not just unhealthy, it is actually toxic for me. Boom, done. There was no notice given. There was none of that. Well, that's, I think, um, one of the reasons why it's so important to have many connections with many people um, I think uh, there's a sense of isolation that comes in relationships that are toxic. 
And that's why, and, and that's part of the toxic relationship often is the other person not wanting uh, you to have connections to other people. Mm-hmm. And of course, the more experience you have in life, the more people you meet, the more you see, the more you realize that the toxic is not necessarily the normal. And by normal, I just mean the, the, the prevalent one, right. the, the, the average. Uh, so knowing and, and reaching out and being connected to other people gives us a sense of the variety of people out there. And those people can bring us so many wonderful gifts um, that we're not we're, we're not limited to just one type of person. Because um, we do, we crave acceptance, we crave companionship, we crave closeness. And some of us are willing to pay a very high price uh, to get those things, not realizing just how terrible that, that price is. Um, just because I also know um, we're trying to keep our the show to a certain amount of time, I'm wondering um, if you could just give a, a basic sense of your health, mental health maintenance program. Um, do, is it a little bit of meditation, physical exercise, uh, downtime with your uh, family? I mean, I'm curious in the day to day how you maintain your optimal, your your best mental health. Um. That's a great question. So it's, it is a routine in that I do it every day, but the components of it may change depending on my schedule. So um, for the ones that stay on in a daily basis are, are my mindset work. Um, Mindset work is absolutely critical to do every day. And it actually goes back to, the point that you were making, Albert, about having connections with other people to realize when toxic relationships are happening to you or around you. I would add that um, the most important connection there is with yourself. So it doesn't take, it doesn't take 15 other relationships for you to be able to identify the toxic one. It takes you understanding and internalizing that you are an amazing human being who deserves to be mentally well and who does not deserve to be treated like crap, whether you have one relationship or 200. And that's what I mean by that connection with yourself. And mindset work is absolutely critical for that, for you to be able to realize that, yes, you are a human being, a whole human being who's never going to be perfect, who's always going to be learning. And in doing this mindset work, you come up with your own level of where your optimal mental well-being is, you know, and that's your baseline for self-love. So no... No, no two people could have the same level, uh, you know, same baseline level. So you really have to do the work to figure out your baseline level. And once you do that, you have to do the work every single day to remind yourself of that because um, these kind of like negative, negative habits are super easy to pick up. And they're some of the toughest ones for us to break, right? We all know this, um, or, or most of us know this, at least in the field. Um But negative habits are super easy to pick up and super tough to break. This negative self-talk, all of this is a negative habit. So you have to counter that every single day with the mindset work. My mindset work includes um, a little bit of, um, it includes a form of mindful meditation where I, you know, really just meditate about um, who I am being as a human being, as a person, and who I want to be in that day ahead, Um, who I want to present as, what are the kind of the main emotions that are going to govern my um, day? What are the kind, you know, and and keep it positive. You want to keep it positive. So this is not a time for you to go into the negative and say, okay, I'm not going to be angry. No, I'm going to be balanced. I'm going to be calm. I'm going to react by, you know, to every situation by first taking a deep breath and processing those types of things. So keep it on the positive. Um, and then, and Adam knows this part because Adam, I, I, I feel like I drill this into him almost every time <laughs> we talk affirmations and visualizations. 
Yes, you do. And you have helped me quite a bit in that. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You're so welcome. Um, Wow. That's really great. That's very, that's a great uh, definition of mindset work. I love that idea of not just analyzing, but um, projecting, uh, moving ahead and thinking, here's what I want this data to be like Mm -hmm. and summoning your, your energy towards that. Absolutely. And I also have to to second the mindset work because that's something in my routine that I do every day. Um, I read mantras. I have my I am statements, like you were saying before. Uh, And I also have kind of like a life goal that I am constantly striving and attaining. So, um, you know, I, I read that to myself. And every time I read it, I'm just like, this is what I'm doing today. This is how I'm going to set my day out. I'm setting this intention to go out and be who I am and be the best I can be. Mm-hmm. And, so, and I would like to add, like, I want to add like one small thing to this. When you do this mindset work, you know, initially you are going to be focused just on you. One thing that will also kind of help um, jumpstart it a little bit, I would say, is when you think about the positive impact that you want to have on just one other, even if it's just one other person or 10 people or hundred people, whatever. But when you think about who you need to be in order to have that positive impact, that's when you'll start kind of working backwards to get to where, you know, to, 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 to get to being that person. And then, like I said earlier, the affirmations and the visualizations, tying those in with the mindset work. Um, I do a lot of my affirmations when um, I take my dogs out for a walk twice a day, every single day. So that's like my physical activity component. Um, um, it does. It's like icy right now. And I just took them out. I, I 365. That's what I'm doing uh, every single day. That's it's important to do that. It's important to get that breath of fresh air and um, to really kind of take that time to think about yourself. Absolutely. Well, we have covered quite a bit here today, and I'm very excited to, um, you know, kind of recap all of this. Uh, We have talked about self love, our own self talk. We've talked about how we can improve that through our mindset work and, you know, just daily talking to ourselves and adjusting our intention. This has been great to kind of focus on the more psychological aspects of our vulnerability and how our audience can really make the most of this. Albert, do you have any last, uh, you know, kind of lingering comments that you want to add to the end of this here? No, but it's just nothing specific about what we talked about. It's just funny how you're... Um, momentum starts building when you start taking an interest in something. I was at a school yesterday where there was a family reunion in the, in the cafeteria of a school because my cousin is a teacher and there were banners all over the ceilings through the hallways about mindset. Everything, I, I'm sorry I didn't take a whole series of photographs to share with you, but it was basically as you walked around the, the halls of the school, the students were given little uh, things to think about about their mindset. So that, that word was really big in my uh, brain yesterday. And it's a big part of a really important part of what we talked about today. So um, it's, it's something I think I'm going to be much more aware with, um, aware of with myself. And, you know, and you can see, um, so I actually talk about this in my book and um, pretty much in my blog posts and all of this too, but people think about mindset as this like really kind of new agey term, right? Um, like, oh, it's this like woo woo term, but it's really not. Um, mindset is actually a scientific term. And the definition of mindset is the internal framework by which you see yourself and the world around you. That's it. So it's your internal framework. Um, and when we have frameworks for every single system and process in our life, including frameworks for dating, you know, like, uh, we know how we, we want to go and date. We know how we want to go and like, um, find a partner. We have these tools and apps and all of these other things now, but even in the old days, like, you know, before technology, there was a process. There was a process of how you apply for a job. There is a process of how you transition into a marriage. There is a process for all of that based on a framework. A mindset is just your internal framework. That's all it is. So it is not a new agey thing. It's, it's in fact, one of the most ancient 
things about ourselves. It's one of it's one of the first fundamental concepts about human beings. So when you think about it that way, it's like okay, so we actually that that has to be the step one. That has to be step one because if you want to love yourself, then you need to work on the framework of this self. Absolutely. That is a great way to to sum all this up. So I just want to thank you, AJ. You are a good friend of mine and I truly appreciate you coming on. This has been great. And I'm just so excited um, that we had you able to speak on this. And also, Albert, I am so excited that we are teaching kids at a young age about mindset. So this is a subject that we can just grow and share and give because like AJ said, this is number one and we should be really working on this. So AJ, thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, any last words before we sign off here today? No, just, it was great to meet you. Thank you for making time for us on uh, a Sunday. Um, really just enjoyed everything you said. I, I, I hope we'll get a chance to, to chat again in the future because there's I'm sure there's some follow-up questions that are going to come from the listeners as well, which is really, uh, I'll certainly uh, direct that they, they seek you out on Instagram and out on the, uh, where, wherever they should go to learn more about some of your ideas and about some of your writings and things. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> as we, you know, one last thing that I would like to add in terms of all of this mindset and self-love is please realize that it is a, it, it is truly a daily thing, daily process that is going to continue for the rest of your life. There is no end to it. That's the beautiful thing about it because there should not be an end to loving yourself and there should be no guilt or shame in loving yourself. Um, that being said, with this mindset work, please be careful. There, there is such a thing as having a false growth mindset and or versus a true growth mindset. Um, you can, you know, we can definitely have a larger conversation about this offline. I'll be more than happy to answer any questions from you or your listeners about this. The other great resource they can go to is um, Dr. Is, is Carol Dweck, D-W-E-C-K. <clears throat> she is a psychologist out of Stanford who is doing all of the the mindset um, research behind all of these initiatives in the schools that you're talking about. So she is the woman behind all of that. So anybody who's interested in the research on that, Carol Dweck is the go-to person. She's written the book, Mindset, the New Psychology for Success. Um, it's it's at an amazing. My, at, at my alma mater, always yes. love to hear the Stanford word. Yep. <laughs> Adam, do you want to do your famous and beautiful wrap up? Absolutely. Well, thank you everyone for listening to another episode of the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. And I'm Albert Imperato. Thank you for listening. <laughs>